Hi guys. Hi Karen. Yeah, this is Karen and I have with me Sherry and Esther. And, and at some point Mary might pop in. And uh, we have been planning this group convo for quite a while and I'm pretty excited about what we're going to uncover. So um, Sherry, you were just saying that you had a big question. So could you kind of throw that at us? Yeah, shall I just start from the top again? Yes. Uh -huh. um, okay, so I had the thought, thinking about this conversation, I had this thought roll through my mind. And I'll just read it. As a young woman, potential was the road that lay ahead of me. As an older woman, it becomes the road that lay behind me. Okay, so then I thought, what is potential? You know, so first of all, potential can cause, if you just take it in, take, take one little aspect of it, because I'm sure that there's lots of things that potential can cause. But potential as a young person could cause you a lot of anxiety because there are so many possibilities and so many choices, so many paths that, you know, that when you look out at that future, you're like, oh, like, you know, I, some people can't choose. So that could be a source of anxiety. And as you get older, potential, because it's on the road that lay behind you, I mean, you still have potential in your, in, your, in your life as an older person, don't get me wrong, but there's a lot of potential that lay behind you, right? Mm -hmm. And that could be depressing because that could be lost opportunities in your life if you, if you focused on that, those things. So those are the would've, could've, should've, right? Mm -hmm. So one of the questions I had about potential because, well, what is potential, okay? That's the big question. But maybe to break it down, is it, is it a root? Is potential itself a root? Or does it have a root? And if so, what are its roots? Chaos? Question mark? Or is potential chaos brought into order? So I'll just leave it there for now, because that's a lot. So, so let me rephrase this. So... <clears throat> In looking at what potential actually is, you, you posited two possibilities. One is that potential is chaos, and one is that it is, put, that it is chaos brought into order. Right. That, okay. Or um, maybe it's both of those. You know, potential in and of itself is chaos. But when you, let's say you choose a path, that's where you take that potential and you start to order it, right? I mean, I could be wrong, but I'm asking. <clears throat> well, two thoughts occur to me. One is that the, all of the potential is in the chaos because the, the order is already completely structured. So, and, and I'm, thinking, I'm, I'm thinking of it in terms of like quantum physics. Um, there are some things that are completely structured already and then there are some things that aren't concretized yet and so it seems to me that that's where the potential lies is in the in the chaos but the other thought I had the other thought I had goes back to your original quote so I'm just going to throw this in the mix too and maybe it will help us as we think about the question 
You said as a young woman, potential was a road that lay ahead of me. As an older woman, it, older woman, it becomes the road that lay behind. And when you said that, I had two thoughts. One was about potential, the way we typically think of potential. You know, I have a lot of choices. What can I do? Shall I do this? Shall I do that? Um, or I have a lot of potential because God has built into me these gifts and possibilities. And, you know, I, I could do many things with that. But it also made me think, just thinking, I've been thinking a lot lately about quantum physics. So what it made me think about is um, the potential that lies ahead of me are the things that I haven't observed yet and haven't become quantified and haven't become concrete because I haven't observed them yet. And then the part of life that I have already lived that's behind me, my past is already concrete. It's finished. It's um, in one sense, it's concrete. In another sense, it's not concrete because the experiences that I may have in the future may rewrite the meaning of the things that happened in the past. So the things that happened in the past are settled in one way, but in another way, they can become rich with meaning again based on something that might happen in the future. Mm. Of course. I mean, a, a really concrete example of that would be grandchildren, right? Like, so in the past you had children and now in, in the future you have grandchildren and those grandchildren are potential that was, that came out of the past. Mm -hmm. You know what I'm saying? Mm -hmm. Just thinking about suffering, how you might have gone through some avenue of suffering in your life and then, um, then somewhere in the future you discover a meaning that lay in that suffering. And once that meaning becomes real to you and you see what you've learned from it and how you've grown and changed because of it, that goes back and takes that suffering that you went through in the past and gives it another level, many levels of meaning that it didn't have when you were going through it. Mm -hmm. Yeah, for sure. For sure. So Esther, I see you nodding. Why don't you jump in there? <laughs> um, well, yeah, I mean, this is really interesting and it kind of, Karen gets into uh, some of what we were discussing in our conversation because um, I was, talking about Molinism. Um, and so, so Molinism is, is this idea that there, it, in a sense, there is a fact of the matter about what would have happened um, in, in any given situation. You know, it's sort of, it's like, it's like an invisible uh, tree branch where all, it's like all the twigs are there, but God is the only one who actually sees all of the twigs. You just see the the single branch, you know. Um, and so, so let, um, me let me clarify that a second. We yeah, see the single branch because the twigs haven't arisen yet, or maybe it never will arise. So the the single straight linear branch is is like our life. It's you know if if this were if our life is a choose your own adventure book, you know. We can only pick out one uh, way to proceed. Okay. Um, but 
just as you and Sherry are saying, there's there are all of the all of the what ifs, and those just accumulate the older that you get. Um, and so, I'm not exactly clear. Maybe maybe you or Sherry could make this a bit clearer. But I'm not exactly clear on what it means for potential to be chaos or to be rooted in chaos. Because what one way you could look at it, and if, if Mary pops in here, maybe she might be like cheering me on this uh one way you could look <laughs> at it is, is <laughs> you you could say that all of those possibilities are ordered and concrete in the mind of god but not in our minds or our lives because we're creatures uh in time so maybe it depends on the the point of view the perspective yeah uh, yeah that's a that's a great i that's a great <laughs> point because I've been wondering a lot about the way different people use the word chaos. Yeah, uh, exactly. I, I was just thinking. Of, yeah, I noticed a lot of scientists use the word chaos in the sense of they're hand wavy, you know. It's, oh, yeah. something, something, something yeah. we don't understand. <laughs> or disorder, or something like that. And and Jordan Peterson, when he talks about it, will sometimes talk about it as that which you fall into when when everything becomes unknown, when life becomes unmanageable or something terrible happens and you fall into the unknown. But he also talks in his book at a much deeper level about what chaos is. And it's not that simplistic, scary, confusing place just where dragons are buried, but it is the place where all possible information resides, all possible I'm not sure if he uses the word potential, but in my mind, that that's what it is. All the possible potential resides there. And just now, when I said when you fall, when you fall into the unknown, the immediate picture jumped into my mind. Have you ever been on one of those trust walks where I went on this thing once with a company uh, retreat where we were going to learn to trust each other and have a better team experience. <laughs> And one of the one of the elements of the trust walk was that they had this big platform built up in a tree and we had to climb a ladder and get up on the platform, stand on it backwards and fall backwards into the waiting arms of our colleagues. Oh boy. <laughs> and I had no trust that they would be able to catch me sufficiently. It's like a really bad youth group activity or yes, something. But, I mean I had to do it, but but the only way I was able to do it that time was to think I am falling into the arms of God. You <laughs> Maybe <know>? literally. <laughs> yeah. So so there's a lot of unknown there, right? And so it may very well be that what we think of as chaos is actually all of the potential unknown that exists in God. And so when we when we when we're trying to manage our own lives and things fall apart and we have to fall into the unknown, yes, yes. in one sense, we're actually falling into the arms of God. Right. 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 That's, a very, that's a very good observation, Karen. Um, you know, I often think about that scene in, I don't know which one of the movies it is, but Raiders of the Lost Ark, where Harrison Ford has to step out into the, you know, the abyss. Oh, I think that might be the Temple of Doom, actually. Yeah. Yeah, you know, and he he steps out and and he actually lands on something, right? So for <laughs> him, human is absolute chaos. Like yes. that moment signifies 
possible death and, you know, destruction. But it, there's an order to it. You know, it, 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 the order exists. It's an underlying order that exists there. I guess maybe, uh, you know, like as a farmer, I often see my animals. Like if I change a routine, for example, mm-hmm. it takes, on, on the whole, my observation over the years has been it takes any animal, horse, goat, sheep, dog, whatever, three days to figure out a routine. So for three days, when I change the routine, they're in chaos. Yeah. You know, they're stepping toes. It's like the rats in the maze. They're trying to figure out what... Yeah. the unknown territory, you know. They're trying to map it out. Exactly. Exactly. I know... I, there's an order for, for me in it, because I know what I'm doing with them. They don't know, though. So for them, it's utter chaos, right? There's three days of utter chaos, and then all of a sudden, they all... They all fall into order, right? Right. <laughs> so, you know, maybe there is, uh, maybe that, that's, that's what, I think that's what you're trying to say, Karen, is that, you know, it may appear to be chaotic, but there is an underlying order to it at all times. And I guess that's in a sense what you were saying, Esther, with this branch. Mm-hmm. You know, we, we see the branch, but God sees the twigs, right? Right. He sees all the potential, all yeah. the possibility. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Okay. That's, that's really good. I like that. Yeah. Now, I, I also had a thought. So have you guys both read the, the Chronicles of Narnia? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Do you remember there, are, I think in several of the books, there are places where um, a character will ask Aslan, well, um, but what if such and such instead? And Aslan goes, uh, I never tell anyone what would have happened. That is not for you to know. I, I tell I tell no story but the person's own. You know, um, you so and often in those moments, there's there's some element of trust that you know a character has to fall into the arms of Aslan, so to speak, and trust that things are going to unfold in the way that's best for them, even though they right. they're not understanding at the moment. Yeah. Yeah. Last night I was watching. Uh, Star Trek First Contact with my 25-year-old daughter because she had never seen it. It's one of my very favorite movies. Have you guys ever seen it? Is that like the very no. first of the of the movies with the original crew? Um, no, 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 no. Um, okay. I see, I think the eighth or something. It, it's It's got Patrick Stewart and... Oh, it's a next gen. Okay. And Worf and Data and those guys in there. Yeah. But, but the theme of the movie is that they have... Uh, followed a Borg ship back through a time warp. The Borgs have gone back to um, uh, America 2060 after the Third World War because that would be a convenient time to destroy the the um, Earth and then completely take it over. And what they discover when they get back there is that the date that the Borg had chosen was the day before Zephram Cochran launches the first warp drive ship. Hmm. So they end up having to um, disobey the first command when you have first contact with uh, the prime directive. Prime directive. They have to disobey the prime directive, which even though they're all earthlings, the prime directive there is when you are 
you're telling somebody who doesn't know anything about the future, hey, in the future we have spaceships and all these things are happening. So they have to disobey the prime directive and explain this to Zephram Cochran because, because of some of the damage that was done by the invaders and stuff, it looks like maybe the ship won't be able to take off. But if that ship doesn't take off, Earth never gets noticed by a wandering ship from some other galaxy that is going through our space at the time the warp ship takes off. And so very, very important point in Earth history that that warp ship takes off on that day. Mm. Well, what happens is one of the guys happens to tell Zephram Cochran, man, we read about you in the history books. You are adored mm. on Earth, you know, in, in the year 2400. In fact, there's a 15-foot statue of you. <laughs> and that scares Zephram Cochran so much that he runs away. Oh, boy. <laughs> and, and it's like that, right? You don't want to know your future. Even if yeah. your future is some glorified thing, that also means you have to live up to it. Yes. Terrified of having to live up to that. So, so you don't really want to know your future, yeah. whether it's good or bad. Okay, now I'm also thinking... Uh, did you guys see the Avengers movies at all, or the the last one? So the last one is the one that's so rife with sacrifice, right? Self sacrifice. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. And it, I don't necessarily like how all that's handled, but bracketing that, so that the the major self sacrifice is Tony Stark, <clears throat> Iron Man, mm -hmm. um, dying at the end to defeat Thanos. And so Doctor Strange is the character who. He sees all the possibilities, and he's he's calculated out that this is the one that will give them all uh, a chance. Like you know, when he he's like a computer, when he when he worked out all of the, the different variations to the end of the line, this this was the the single one that worked. And so, um, and he tells Tony Stark in one scene, he says, "If I if I tell you uh, what's going to happen, it won't happen." And that's exactly what you're saying about this this mm -hmm. Star Trek episode. And, you know, of course, Strange has known all along that Stark is going to have to, to sacrifice himself. And so it's like, nope, you, you need to, I, I can't ruin this. I can't mess it up by telling you that you're going to die, you know? Yeah, that's exactly it. <clears throat> and this actually could lead it to an interesting thought. Um, so I, I think, oh yeah, you and Mary were discussing this and you, you were talking about Jesus, um, how much self-knowledge Jesus had when he was uh, here on earth. And, you know, if there were things that Jesus didn't know and in what sense did he not know them? Um, so you have Jesus in the garden of Gethsemane, he's praying that God would, um, would take the cup away from him. And it's, it's such a fascinating prayer to think about because it's like, well, but doesn't Jesus know that, that God's not going to take the cup away? Doesn't, doesn't he know that he's going to be crucified and rise again and all this stuff that he, is, he himself has already been prophesying to the disciples? So what does this mean? What's this sudden moment? Is it a moment of doubt or confusion or, or what, you know? Um, well, what if it, sorry. Yeah, well, I mean, it's... I, th I think it's I think it's because I, I think it's because part of what Jesus sacrificed when he became incarnate was he he sacrificed um, 
the absence of vulnerability. So when, when he was, before he was incarnate, he had no vulnerability and he had, and he hadn't emptied himself of anything, but it was that self emptying, that self abasement and that humbling that then made him. So there, there's a Greek word kenosis, um, which, which means that he still had these moments where like, like any man, he, he fears and he wonders and he's unsure of, of something. Um, and so then that's part of what the incarnation means. So yeah, go ahead, Jerry, you were going to add something. Well, I was just thinking, you know, when he was praying that prayer, okay, so he knows, I mean, it's obvious from the gospels that Christ knows why he, he, he's, he's come. Mm -hmm. He knows what his job is, let's say, so to speak. But he does pray that prayer, and maybe that prayer is prayed because he knows that there is potential for change, mm. right? Because that, that's, that seems to be, you know, I know for Jordan Peterson, the idea of potential is it's, it's mystifying, it's, it's mysterious. It's, you know, he's often said, when you look at someone and you say, I can see their potential, what are you talking about? Mm -hmm. You know, because it's not really a material say, thing. It's not. It's not an object like a water bottle. No, and you but, can't but it. The, the other thing is, everybody understands that. They go, "Oh yeah, mm -hmm, yeah." Everyone's <laughs> nods in agreement, right? <laughs> and it's like, okay, so what are we talking about here, people? You know, and um, and maybe uh, so. So if I just continue on my notes here quickly, that might. I think it ties in actually. I'm not, I'm not changing the course direction at all because... Go ahead, go. Um, so for me, look, the garden is a narrative about potential, okay? There's, there's, the, there's the tree of the knowledge of, of good and evil, and then there's the tree of life, which is immortality. And so there's the potential to be immortal without sin, and then there's the potential to be mortal with sin, Right? Those two potentials are there. And um, um, when you say mortal with yeah. sin, what, what do you mean by that? Because, because if you take from the tree, so when Adam and Eve took, took from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, they were, they were banned from the garden and the tree of life was guarded. Right. So they couldn't have immortality. So they basically, they chose mortality and sin mm -hmm. over immortality. Without sin, I'm going to assume, because God wasn't letting them have it with it. <laughs> okay. So, you know, if they had made, if they had gotten to a point in their lives where they were just like, we are never, ever, ever going to touch that tree of the knowledge of good and evil. They may have been able to partake from the tree of life. That's a, a big if. But the fact that they weren't able to partake from the tree of life with sin tells me that they were never, that, that was never an option, immortality and sin. It was mortality and sin or immortality. Those were the options, you know? So um, now, just bring me back around there, Esther. What were you talking about before? Um, well, so let's see. I was, oh, I was discussing... <clears throat> No, no, yeah, so, no, just for, right before that, when you were talking about, what were you talking about kenosis. exactly? I was, yeah, well, I was talking about um, Jesus' kenosis, or 
self-emptying. Right, 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 right. So in the garden. Yeah. Yeah, praying, praying that prayer. When I think about that, like, you know, thinking about the idea of potential, maybe he, maybe he knows, like, well, he does know, <laughs> that God sees the, we see the branch, but God sees the twigs, right? Mm-hmm. So he's like, okay, well, there may be another, op- another way around this. There may be some, you know, maybe he's got a backup plan, you know, that I don't know about. So I'm just going to see. I'm going to ask, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, right, because for the moment, as, as the incarnate son, he, he doesn't have exactly the same perspective as the father. Um, which no, that, the Trinity is so hard to talk about without committing heresy, you know, so I, I always have to be, yeah, have yeah, to be and so then abstract and also human. Okay. So he's the Trinity, you know, he's part of the Trinity, but he's human. And so right, right. there's a human side of him that says, wait, maybe there's the potential for something, <laughs> another thing here. Yeah, Let's yeah. ask him. Right? right. Let's see. Right. Um, so that's a possibility. I think. Well, to me, another possibility is that it's uh, um, it's a pattern that Jesus may be teaching us about how to respond when we are at our uttermost, let's say. Mm. Um, I've been having some back problems lately. And... Um, mm-hmm the way it manifests itself is some pain in the upper part of my spine, mm-hmm. but it's pain unlike anything I've ever had before. Mm-hmm. And it's, it's this grinding, like a deep, I don't know if you've ever had a root canal, but it's kind of like a root canal. <laughs> I haven't, but I, I have had back pain. So, <laughs> yeah. so I know what you're well, talking I've, about. I've had back pain before and I've had lots of different kinds of back pain and I've gone through labor twice and, and all of that. And, there are many different kinds of pain. There are some pains I call really clean pain and sharp pain and, you know, whatever. But, but this particular pain is, it's a grinding, sick, ugly pain that I've never had before. It's like a dull pain as opposed to a sharp pain. Yes. Yep. Mm-hmm. yep. It's not unbearable, but it, it shuts off my capacity to do anything. Yep. <laughs> I can still move. I can still walk around. It's not affecting my walkability or any of those things. So theoretically, I could continue to do life. Right. But, but it, talking about salience, it is like the salient thing at every moment. Yep. 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 Think of a right? So it kind of takes this, it, it, it requires a complete shift in my thinking to accomplish anything. And I mean, the strange thing is once I make that shift in thinking and I start, I get really involved in something else, I'm not thinking about the pain. It's still there probably, but it's not noticeable when I'm in this like flow state of whatever I'm doing, but then it comes back the instant I stop whatever I'm doing. And, but it it just makes me think Jesus was in such intense pain in the garden but what he showed us is that in that moment, what we do is we go to the Father. Yeah. We say to the Father, if there's any way that you can take this from me, but if not, I yes. am still yours, right? It's right. the same story we get in Job. Mm-hmm. You know, if not, yeah. I will still worship you. 
And yes. I, think I will still follow through on a task you've given me. Yeah, or also, I, I, another story is um, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, where they, they say, we know that our Lord can deliver us from the fire, mm -hmm. but if not. But if not. But if not, you know. And so that's the, the, the surrendering. Yeah, and it's not if he can't, it's if he, will, if he doesn't want to. Right. <clears throat> you know, we can, but when they say if not, they don't mean if he can't. They mean if he doesn't want to. Right. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Isn't it usually if he will? I know that's nitpicky, and it's probably maybe in the translation it comes out as well. I don't know, but um, you, I'm you also thinking right about, about the time that there was the uh, the demoniac that kept the father whose son kept falling into the fire and and raging and creating all these problems, and and the man came to Jesus and he said, "I know that you can. I know that you can save my son, if you. I think if you will, something mm. like that." Sure. Um, it's like a compressed version of if it be your will, you know. Yeah. If it's your will that he yeah. should be healed. Something like that. Yeah. And what's so, what's so remarkable about Jesus and listening to Peterson's biblical lectures, he's looking at Genesis and he's looking at, you know, Abraham and God and saying it's a strange thing that God can be bargained with, you know. And exactly. the, beautif the beautiful thing about the New Testament is you see that same thing with Jesus. Jesus can be bargained with. And sometimes, like with the, with the woman who comes to him, um, who's, I think her daughter is, is sick, and she's a Gentile woman, and Jesus is sort of tough on her. He's kind of harsh with her. They have this little back and forth where he goes, well, you know, I'm here for the Jews. Um, <laughs> and so yeah. should, I, should I take bread and, and uh, give, it, give it to the dogs? It's like, whoa, Jesus. Yeah. Little, little harsh. Where's that coming from? But the, but the woman just comes right back and she goes, ah, well, the, the dogs can eat the crumbs, though. And Jesus is like, yeah, well you played. Know, you know, very good. I've always, I've always felt that the reason Jesus did that was to push, to, to get, you know, these are people coming to him with things that are deeply, um, they're in deep need of an answer to those things, whether it be a question or an illness or something, right? Mm -hmm. And they're not, they're not going to miss an opportunity. And so he pushes them and he pushes them and he wants to know, he wants them to say it. He wants them to come up with the answer. It's like what I would do with my children. You know, my kids would say, what is this a picture of mommy? And they'd hold up an encyclopedia and I'd say, what does it say at the bottom? Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. Because they were too lazy to read it. Right? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Basically. And, um, or, you know, and, and, and I knew that if they read it, they would discover they could read, but they would also discover what the thing was that they wanted to know what it was, okay? Mm -hmm. And so it's like Jesus, he, he, he's, not, he's not teaching, he's not necessarily teaching us a lesson in, in you know, although it does, but he's pushing that person to really discover what it is that they, who they are. Okay. Mm -hmm. Because in that moment, they're going to come up with the deepest answer in their soul. It's like when he says to the lame person, do you want to be healed? Mm -hmm. You know, people are like, what, why would he ask him that? You know? 
Yeah. But you know what? I have been through mental health programs and most of the people in those mental health programs don't want to be healed. Okay. Yeah. 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 And that story came floating right up to the surface for me. I was like, that's why he asked. Yes. Because there are people out there that don't want it. No. They want to be in the position. It has served them well and it will continue to serve them well. Right. Yeah. So I think a lot of his, his, his questions were to, to really draw out. And I see him doing that all the time, you know, like when he deals with Peter, he deals with Peter differently than he deals with John. Yep. You know? <laughs> and, and, and one of the, one of the um, amazing um, observations for me about the disciples was the fact that Jesus gave Judas control of the treasury okay yes so i'm just that interesting okay what is this saying hmm. you know it's like here you go judas here's the cash i want you to look after it <laughs> all right in other words here you go judas here's your problem i want you to solve it i'm going to give you ample opportunity to figure this out you know and i'm going to be really patient with you so so patient that on the eve of my arrest, I'm going to say, go do what it is you have to do, Judas. Mm. You never got there, Judas. Yeah. You didn't get there, Judas. Oh, this makes... Sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt, but this made me think of like the perfect song for this, this whole conversation. Um, do either of you guys know a, a singer-songwriter named Ken Miedema? No. Okay. Paul Vanderclay knows, because uh, because he was he's a sort of a Michigander type guy. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, so so wait, he's kind of an obscure artist. Nobody really like knows who he is, except a few people who who knew his music back in the day. But he had a tune in the seventies called "Fork in the Road," um, and it's about Judas. And so the the hook is "Stop right here." There's a fork in the road. I don't think you want to get lost. One way leads to a potter's field. The other way leads to a cross. Um, mm -hmm. So it's, wow. this, yeah, the whole song is kind of directed at Judas. It's like, you know, go, go along, Judas. You know, you're, you're a man on your own, and you, you never did understand what, what the master was doing, you know. Yeah, and, you know, but, but, Jesus, but Jesus tries to draw that. He, 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 he takes the very problem of Judas, okay? The, the essence of Judas's problem and he gives it to him, mm -hmm. you know, and to me that I find that just so as a person in a relationship with God, I'm grateful for that story. I say, I look at that and I say, okay, what is it that, you know, what is it that he's going to, he's going to help me to see it. And, and that's really the answer to our, you know, People can tell us things, right? People can sit down and say, well, you know, I think you should. And, you know, and if you just did that and change your diet and, you know, whatever the case might be. But if you don't, if the light doesn't go on for you and the light only does when you realize something, when you take all that information and you're holding that sack of coins and you're going, oh, wait a minute. Mm -hmm. I have a problem here. Yeah. I have a really big problem here. So, but you know, in so, talking about all this, it's it's all kind of. Can you hold oh, that? Sorry, Karen. Hold that because 
I just wanted to throw in a couple of things here that came up for me when you were talking about this. One is that when you said, um, and, and I think you almost got at it in what you just said about Judas, but it's this idea of some people, some people, some, the, okay, the, the lady with uh, even the dogs under the table can get the crumbs, right? Right. And, and I liked what you said about how he was pushing her. Part of it, he's pushing her to help her figure things out on her own, but he's also pushing her, I think, to, to, own, to own her own solution. I mean, it's yeah, like when, when, you're, when you're processing something on your own and you're going through it and you finally come to the place you get the aha and you have ownership over it, then there's some chance that you might actually follow through on whatever it is that you need to do. And if you never get to that place where you have ownership of it, you're not yeah. going to follow through on it. And, and you're not even really probably going to want the healing because you're not going to understand what the problem is doing to you. And I think that fits together too with Judas. But the, there's an additional element in the Judas thing when you said he's giving Judas his problem and saying, here, this, you know, this is, you struggle with money. So here, I'm going to put you in a position of power over this thing so that you can work your way through that struggle. And this is just kind of a different side, a different face to that is the idea of helping people to live into their potential. So I think Jesus was saying when he gave him the money, you have, on the one side, you have a problem with money, but you could also be so good with this and you yeah. live into this potential. And here's how you can live into this potential. It's like, uh, I remember when my daughter was in elementary school, the teacher used to take the kids that had the biggest problems with obedience and with, um, sitting quietly and following the rules and so forth. And she would make them the class monitor. Oh boy. <laughs> you know I mean? That's yeah. She gives them the responsibility because if yeah. they have the responsibility to watch other people and make sure they're following the rules, then it's going to change their own perspective on their own behavior. Well, right? then they understand how important obedience is. Yeah. Right? Mm -hmm. if, they're, if they require it, then they understand how important it is to, to, yeah. to be obedient, you know? Yeah, and you wonder, yeah. I mean, it seems like Judas probably did a good job as, as the guy holding the purse. I mean, you know, you'd never hear about his embezzling or anything like that. Um, well, there, there is actually, though, Esther, I think in the... Um, oh, really? I'm not sure which yeah, not what, I'm not sure which gospel it is, but it's the telling of the story where Mary Magdalene is pouring the, the expensive oh, yes. perfume, right? And Judas makes a big stink and says, oh, that money could have been used to feed the poor and so on. It's, I think yes. there's a slight little clause in there somewhere that, and I don't know which gospel it is. It would be good maybe if uh, I should look it up. But um, if, I, if I'm right, I think it says something about it, that they knew that he was taking from the purse. They knew that Judas was taking from the purse. Oh, well, so I, I yeah. just remember a phrase saying um, he held the purse or he had the purse. Um, yeah, that's in there. But, but in one of the Gospels, one of the accounts, there is there is this idea that they kind of knew he was embezzling. Hmm. Oh, um, that would be interesting. Yeah. 
you know what I oh you know what um, I think it may be actually ah, I, I'm finding this I think it may be the Gospel of John um, can you read it? I'm, I'm googling Karen's probably googling no I'm not googling. <laughs> oh, oh great so, look this up here I'm gonna google on my iPad okay you'll probably probably do that faster Judas embezzling. Oh, oh, oh. Good thing we're checking because sometimes these things are just little deposits that were made from some sermon we heard somewhere along the line because somebody else had that idea and it may not actually be there. But good you thing. know what, though? I think it may be. I think it's um, John chapter 12. And I think John is like inserting this this bitter little aside. Yeah. He, Judas, yeah, Judas said this not because he cared about the poor, but. Um, because, he was, because he was a thief. Yes. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, trying to find the verse. Says, oh, as here we go. The money yeah. I found it. Yep. You, you go ahead and read it. As keeper of the money bag, this is the. Um, I don't know what version this is. He used to take from what was put into it. So. Uh -huh. You know what? I did know that. And even as I was saying that, I was thinking, oh, somewhere in my subconscious, though, there's a little voice saying, that's not quite right. There is a verse. So there we yeah. go. You found it. Yeah. So in that spot, I think that's, the, that's actually the verse that reveals that he was the keeper of the money bag and he was embezzling. Interesting. And he had a bad attitude towards Mary Magdalene. <laughs> yep. <laughs> yeah. So he was an all around grump, that guy. Yeah, he was. Well, and you know, if you were, depending on, I don't know if you ladies, if you're, if you're a Calvinist or a Minion or where you like fall in that whole uh, battle royale, um, but I, I, I tend to take a very strong Arminian stance of, you know, believing that we have free will. So um, there's, there's this one verse Calvinists will sort of go to as a, a proof text to make their case that Judas was um, a vessel of wrath, meaning that uh, God had sort of preordained or predetermined that Judas was going to be um, a bad apple and, and was going to betray Jesus and be damned for all eternity. Um, and so then in that sense, it's like he was just kind of a, a tool or an instrument in God's hand, um, you know, a, a piece on the chessboard of the salvation story. Um, and, you know, I, I disagree. <laughs> I, I don't think that's, I don't think that's true. I see Judas as a, a free agent still, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Well, that's kind of where my notes go. <laughs> yeah. Because, because I say, I, I wrote here, um, so the garden being a narrative about potential, right? the potential mm -hmm. to be immortal without sin the potential to be mortal with sin so then we're then we're in then we're kind of wandering into the the, uh, the territory of choices and fate and destiny and well carb Cal calvinism and armin what did you call it Armenian? arminianism not to be confused Arminian. with armenian <laughs> you guys have names for all the things that i've been thinking about for years <laughs> <laughs> We're all thinking okay, about the uh, same thing. The names don't matter. It's yeah, the idea. Yeah. Pay attention to the story, right? It, it's going to draw out the same questions. So how does free will play a role and is there free will? And, and then I wrote, if there is no free will, then why did God put the tree in the garden? 
Right. And if there is free will, then why did God put the tree in the garden? And so <laughs> this is my thing, okay? So <laughs> it's like, I love the garden. I love the garden, you know, because it's, it's well, like I've said before, it's, it's God's heart. God's heart is in the garden, right? That's the original story. That's, and that, and, and, and the guard, there's the garden and then there's the new heaven and the new earth. And, and it, those are the, you know, that's the beginning and that's the end. Right. And it really, what it is, is it, it, it's the same thing, right? Yes. It's this communion, communion with God in a place where, where that communion can never be broken. It can never be lost. Um, in a sense, we aren't in the position to rebel. You know, Satan rebelled and fell from heaven. And, and, but because of Christ, we're in a position where we, we're redeemed, we're purchased, we're bought back. We're not, we're not you know, God has this, this creature that he made that he loves because and that's why he made it because he loves it. And, and then he figures out a way and this is just me talking. Okay. And Go ahead. Like, Keep like talking. Said, you get so close to heresy with this stuff. <laughs> it's like Paul Vanderclay says, just say it. Even if it's heresy. I've always been afraid to talk about this because I'm afraid I don't know. Maybe I'll get hit by a bolt of lightning. <laughs> no, um, but anyway, so God, God has this plan to to have this creature with, and and that's why free will is so in, important in this discussion because he wants something that has the ability to choose him. Okay. Mm -hmm. Yes. Yes. And, yes. Um, yeah. And so he he. He, he creates this thing. He gives them potential. Yes. Choose your way. Right. Yeah. And then, and then they choose and he says, okay, I'm going to buy you back and I'm going to buy you back in such a way that you can never escape from me again, but you won't be trapped because you'll want to be there. Mm. Okay. Yeah. So it's, it's like, it's like, um, you're not out there catching birds and sticking them in cages. Right. You know, they're flying in and yes. living in your house. That's exactly it. That's the picture I, I yeah. see as well. And I, um, right. so if you read, so Dante in the Divine Comedy, oh boy, if, if only Mary had been able to make it if she, she were here, because she'd be geeking out Catholicly over this. I, I, um, would, I would love to hear from Mary on all this, actually. Yeah, but so uh, this talk about Will made me think about, so... With Dante, you've got the Inferno, so that's about hell. And then he makes his way to Purgatory, the Purgatorio. And then he makes his way to Paradise in the Paradiso. So there's a lot of conversations about uh, free will and what exactly that means in the context of beings who are in heaven. Um, and so there's a, a one famous line, a character in Paradise says, in his will is our peace. Um, and so what Dante kind of sketches is this idea that the soul spends a lifetime choosing God, ongoingly choosing God, desiring God. And then after the end of life, 
it's almost like you're, you're approaching a magnet and you get closer and closer and closer and then you, you stick, <laughs> so to speak, you know, um, and then you're never, you're never tempted anymore or, or faltering or, or wavering or second guessing it. You're just, you're finished. That's the completion. When you're that embodied God man or man God or whatever it is, you know, then you're, you know, then you're that spiritual creature. Are you talking about an earthly form or so, or died? Or, so, I'm, so I'm thinking about, you may be talking about theosis, which, so I, I'm not in the Orthodox tradition. And so, um, Me either. Okay, yeah. I, so I don't think of it as, the, right. I don't think of it as the soul becoming um, a man god. I just think of it as the soul's will after death, you know, the soul in paradise, our wills are going to be perfectly united with God's will. Um, that we, we will just always will the good. We will always will what God wants without any um, temptation or faltering or second guessing. So there's never going to be a worry that we might um, fall again after that. Um, but now the, the dark side of that, the flip side is this is this is also going to be true for souls who ongoingly are rejecting God? Is that yeah. after the end they they're going to stick like a magnet to um, the other guy <laughs> on, on on the other <laughs> side? You know. <laughs> well, well, I, I want to go back to this whole ongoing debate between Arminianism and Calvinism. Do let's let's do this. <laughs> How the, I mean, this all fits together with what you were just talking about. But I became a believer in a very small little country church that happened to have a really wise pastor. Hmm. And um, he had had a tremendous influence on the people in that church. And, and the church was also very mission-oriented. So we got to meet and fellowship with missionaries from all over the world. And, and I had a very rich beginning for which I'm incredibly thankful. And yeah. um, one of the missions that I became involved with was much more over on the Arminian side, and they were big fans of Asbury Seminary in Kentucky. And so I saw a lot of that side of things. And then I've also been involved with a lot of churches that are more on the evangelical free side or the, actually, I'm not sure what e-free fits in, but but since coming to California, I've been involved in a lot of churches that are Presbyterian, which I assume is much more over on the Calvinism side. I've never paid much attention to the names of all these things because yeah. I, I look at things from a more kind of global perspective. <laughs> yeah. But I remember... That's good. That's good, actually. It can actually be helpful to have that sort of outside view where you're not lost in a yeah. maze of jargon, you know. Yeah. So, but I remember this one uh, missionary who was incredibly brilliant man who had been a missionary in Colombia and had seen how um, liber liberation theology had destroyed South America, had destroyed the church in South America. And so he went back to Oxford University to take a doctorate in theology so that he could uh, do his dissertation on liberation theology and find a way to do battle against it in South America. Mm. And he used to teach us a lot about that kind of thing. And 
And in one of the sessions that where he was talking to us about what he had learned, he went into this dispute between Calvinism and Arminianism. And he said, let me tell you a little story. He said, there was a king who lived at the top of a very high mountain and he had a beautiful daughter. And when it came time for her to marry, he, he said to all the young men in, the, in his kingdom, you know, come on a certain day and I will give you a task. And the one who can do the task, who can, the one who can give me the best answer to the challenge will have my daughter's hand in marriage. So on a given day, all the young men came and they're all standing around and the king says to them, okay, here is my carriage and my daughter is in the carriage and you are going to drive the carriage down the mountain. How close to the edge of the road can you get? and get my daughter safely down the mountain. And the first guy says, well, I think I could get within 18 inches of the edge of the road and I could still get the carriage safely down the mountain. The second guy says, yeah, I think I could get within 10 inches of the edge and I could still get your daughter safely down the mountain. And the third guy says, sir, I would stay as close to the mountain as I can. And he's the one that got the bride. And, and he said, that's the way it needs to be in our relationship with Jesus Christ. Yeah. Forget all these disputings. Stay as close to the mountain as you can. Yep. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And like I said, you know, like I, I honestly... To me, what that, that always said about the whole issue of heaven and hell... I mean, I understand what you're saying, Esther, when you talk about the, the picture in Dante about drawing closer and closer and sticking at one time, and which is not dissimilar to um, C.S. Lewis's idea of how we're always growing either more like a demon or we're, or we're becoming more like someone that someone would someday fall down and, and worship. That's right. Right? That's right. That's exactly right. Yeah. And I think, and I yeah. I totally see that, but, yeah. but let, me, let me just finish this one thread. I forget if I don't finish a thought. No, go ahead. Sorry. And that is that... Um, you know how it says in scripture that when we become believers, we become citizens of heaven. The transaction is complete at the moment that we, that we really make that faith in Jesus or when, whether he's the one that makes it real or we make it real. Anyway, at that moment, the transaction is complete and we are in him. The scripture talks about him being, him filling us with fullness and we are in him, so we are both in him and surrounded by him, right? So yes. he's the one that's on the way to heaven. He's the one that's in heaven. He's the one that's seated at the right hand of God. He's already there, so that at the moment that that transaction is complete, we are already seated with him in the heavenlies. We're already there. But the people who continually choose not to receive that free gift there's no way for them to be in heaven because the only way you're in heaven is if you're in Christ. Yep. That's right. You're either in him or you're not in him. It's not yep. as though God is standing up there making some choice about, yes, this one goes to hell and that one goes to hell and this other one goes to hell. Exactly. It's not like yeah. God is looking at people and saying, you're not following the rules, so you're going to hell. Yeah. It's, yeah. Here, here is the, here's the ark. Here's the ark. You can get on the ark. I want you to get on the ark. I'm giving you the ark. This is your safety. Right. Come into yeah. the ark. 
come into Jesus and then you will be with me in eternity at this very moment. That's so good. That makes me think of um, something I saw on Twitter the other day where somebody put out a, put out a prompt. Um, like if so, if you don't believe in God, you know, would you want God to be real or would you not want God to be real? Um, and so this guy that I follow a little bit, who's a, a scientist, he replied, um, I, well, a really good God would give people like specific, detailed, up to the minute instructions on how not to go to hell. Um, <laughs> and so, you know, if there is a God, he, he has to be, he has to be evil. You know, he's, he's got to be some kind of wicked, capricious um, you need to ask that guy how he felt about his parents telling him what he should do with his life. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, that's a good, that's an insightful question. Yeah. Um, yeah. But it's, I think it get. yeah, this gets to what you're saying, Karen, is people, people have such a distorted view of what, um, what damnation actually means. And sadly, I think this may partly be contributing to the youth exodus from the church, because I've known of it, at least a couple of young people who, you know, they're having this crisis of meaning and faith and whatnot. And part of it stems from, uh, you know, having gotten, I think, an incorrect or distorted picture of, of what it means for people to go to hell or God to send people to hell. Because the way they think of it is, it's like you were saying, it's this arbitrary, okay, God like picks you up by the scruff of the neck and puts yeah. you here or puts you there. You know, it's like he's packaging people up and sending them off here and there. It's like, no, 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 no. It's like C.S. Lewis says, the door to hell is, is locked from the inside. And what God is doing is offering your, your ticket out of, of hell. But then you, you can walk that way or this way, but you're, you're the one doing the walking, you know. Yeah. Have, have any of you read uh, George MacDonald's Unspoken Sermons? No, I've, I like McDonald, but I don't think I've picked that, that one up. Well, you know, well, I, I agree with the link that you gave me. I tried to get them, but I came to some other weird page. It didn't give me the unspoken uh -huh. sermon, so I need uh -huh. to try, try it again. Page. I'll try it again. I'll try it again and send it to you again. But um, there is, uh, okay, so I, I started reading them, and I got to, uh, there's a, um, oh, wait, before I forget, you were talking about constraint with um, Mary. Yeah. And there's a book. Can you see this? Can you see a this? Beautiful Constraint. By Adam Morgan and Mark. Yeah. Barton. Barton. Let me read it. Adam Morgan and Mark Barden, B-A-R-D-E-N. It's, it's, it was recommended on a, on a CBC radio program about advertisement, advertising, uh, what's it called, The Art of Persuasion or something. Mm -hmm. And the guy recommends it. And um, so it's kind of a business thing, but it talks about the, the um, this is off topic from what we were talking about, but I, I oh, thought of it okay. when I watched the person with Mary. It talks about the, um, how constraint can really bring out your creativity, right? Mm -hmm. Like if you say, you gotta, you say, you gotta do this in 30 seconds or, you know, you only have um, three colors, paint me an elephant, you know, and, you know, <laughs> and people just, they go for it. Right. And so it's talking about constraint. Anyway, I thought of it yesterday. I wanted to show you that, but back to 
Mr. McDonald's well, here. Before you leave that, I have to say, yes, absolutely. It's, it's something I think about all the time with art because the yeah. boundaries are the most important thing. Putting boundaries yeah. on yourself to force you into creativity are the most important thing. And yeah. I don't know if you caught the video I did with Alex a while back where we were talking about particle physics. And, and I had watched this, um, this lecture by uh, some woman who was doing a lecture about particle physics. And she had made this discovery that if you take all these um, equally shaped particles and put them in a, a space, a vacuum space, and um, in tightly constrain them, they will self-organize into a crystalline structure. Just ordinary okay. particles, not crystal particles, just ordinary particles. They'll self-organize into a crystalline structure. And she yeah. said, and this happens solely based on entropy, nothing but entropy. And so to her, that means there's no need for a God because entropy alone will. And I'm thinking, wait a minute, you provided a tight constraint. Yeah. <laughs> that is not insignificant. <laughs> the tight constraint was the important thing there. Yeah. Not the entropy, yeah. it's the tight constraint. And that yeah. I, I see that in so many um, totally. scientist arguments that where yeah. they'll, they'll leave out. I was watching another one today where he's talking about our consciousness is nothing more than particles in a certain pattern. And it's the pattern <laughs> that's important, not the particles. Therefore, there's yeah. no need for God. I'm like, wait a minute. <laughs> They're in a pattern. Yeah. Patterns come from a mind. Patterns yeah. don't just arise. No. Right? Yeah. So anyway, that's my little physics thing. Okay, go back to what you're saying. Well, it's true. Like, you know, like it, it, people always, they talk about these big ideas like the theory of evolution, but they don't know where life originated. You know? They don't even know how evolution works, but you can't say that out loud. <laughs> You know, and well, let's just say evolution does work, but they still don't know where life comes from. And, and so in a sense, their whole theory is just floating on this. It, there's no foundation under their theory. It, you know, like the main, the main thing is how does life originate? Well, Dawkins would say it was, it was a happy <laughs> chemical accident. That's it's his word. Oh, yeah. <laughs> it's a nice little sweep under the rug, right? Yep. And they like to do that. They love to do that. You know, the other thing is that, well, what is consciousness? Where did that come from? Yeah. Let's move on to the next, you know, kind of thing. It's just an arrangement of particles in a certain pattern. Yep. It's an emergent property of matter. Yes. That's there right. you go. I solved it, everyone. Let's go to lunch. <laughs> that sounds really good, whatever it means. Exactly. You know, I, I, I always like to say, that sounds clever. What does it mean? Yeah. Well, so when he says it's an emergent property, he says... Um, Who? So this guy I was listening to today was saying that very thing. Max, oh, Max yeah. <laughs> His it. name was Max Tegmark. And he says, it's, uh, it's just an emergent property. And he says, mm, I think it's it, because though? consciousness is a phenomenon that has properties above and beyond the properties of its particles. We physicists call phenomena that have properties above and beyond those over their parts. We call this emergent phenomena. Okay, so I have a question for Max Tegmark. 
why are why do particles have some properties and not other properties? Who picks yeah. the properties that particles have? Right? Well, hey, look, you used they a phrase. That question. I mean, to me, that's pretty fundamental. Yeah. <laughs> particles organize yeah. themselves into certain properties that makes it liquid, and then they organize themselves into other properties, and it becomes ice and other. You know, they have different properties, but. The, you know, the properties come from the patterns. And so anyway, I could go on for days. <laughs> you know, just the fact that he used a phrase that, that Esther threw out there as, you know, that sounds clever, but what does it mean, phrase? Yeah. Yes. Yeah. He used it. So the emergent <laughs> property. Yeah. They all it's, do. A, it's a common catchphrase. Yeah, well, I mean, Steven Pinker will will drone on about it. That's that's part of his deal. He'll just sort of all that means is the thing that's the thing that's arising that I don't get. Yeah, exactly. Right. Right. Yeah, it's but, like bubbles in the glass. The thing that he says it's it, it's a, it has properties above and beyond the properties of the particles themselves. So once the particles come into a certain arrangement they produce something that's beyond what they should be able to produce right based on that arrangement and that thing that they produce it's above and beyond the very language that they're using is above and beyond yes. right yes. right that's emergent phenomena so now god is emergent phenomena i guess yeah well and so i was this me back i have to ask you esther i've had this question since the beginning when you were talking about molinism Mm -hmm. And you've also said a couple of times you wanted to avoid heresy. <laughs> so the last time we talked, I, w I went back and I looked up Molinism, but I don't remember what I saw. I just remember <laughs> it was kind of controversial. And I'm wondering, is this Molinism? M-O-L-I-N-I-S-M? Yeah. Uh, I, I don't think Molinism is, but uh, open theism would be. That, like, that was something we were discussing that, yeah. that is, is considered a a form of heresy. Um, I, I think I think Molinism is, is within the bounds of orthodoxy. It's just that it's it's sort of furiously debated among philosophical, theological types who might have a, a different model of, of free will and determinism or, or might disagree. So well, you know it's open theism relate to Molinism at all and um yeah it, I think it well it would because they're they're in like direct tension with each other because um, with with Molinism, the assumption is that uh, God sees all of the uh, the potential um, and all of the, the would have happened, and and also that God sees the future. Whereas um, open theism is saying that God uh, God's knowledge is limited, and it's that it, it doesn't just mean well, okay, maybe while Jesus was incarnate, he had a moment where his, his knowledge was a little bit veiled. An open theist will say no, like. God, as in God the Father, and changing eternal God, uh, never knows what the future is uh, until it actually happens. So, um, yeah, that's a bold. <laughs> it's yeah, it's 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 heresy, <laughs> you know. <laughs> so, okay. Yeah, yep. Yeah, so we were talking about George McDonald before in the unspoken sermons. Yes, okay, that's right. We want to get back to the, the unspoken sermons. I just, I just wanted to, because we were talking about um, the idea of redemption and damnation, right? 
Mm-hmm. Well, Arminianism and Calvinism. And- yeah, now McDonald was a McDonald was a universalist, though. Yeah, well, that's that's what I'm discovering. Yeah, that's, yeah. Like I said, I I'm um, I'm not I'm not a um, a theolo- uh, theologian, and I'm not a philosopher. But I but you know I spend a lot of time thinking about th- things. I ask, like sure. like the Judas thing, for example. You know why why would Jesus give him the the treasury? Like why would he give him that job? Like, you know I I. I ask those kind of deeper questions and then I just wait for answers to fall out of the sky. No, I'm just kidding. (laughs) (laughs) You know, I think about these things for a long time and, and, um, and. You're sort of intuitively stumbling into giant philosophical debates, you know? Yeah. 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 And, um, and then all of a sudden someone says, Oh, that's called this. And I'm like, really? Oh, (laughs) okay. I thought it was just a weird idea. Yeah. So what was because, the unspoken sermons that really jumped out at you? Oh, okay. So um, he does a he does a um, he does a, a sermon, a, sh- a short bit on. Um, I just gotta find it here. So it's called "Our God Is a Consuming Fire," right? Is the name of the sermon? Yeah. Um, and there's a portion at the end of it here that if I could just read it to you quickly maybe let it sink in sorry I have to find it okay Um, the man whose deeds are evil fears the burning but the burning will not come the less that he fears it or denies it escape is hopeless for love is inexorable. Our God is a consuming fire. He shall not come out till he has paid the uttermost farthing. So there's a universalist for you. Not really, okay? Not really. But I find his observations really interesting. If the man resists the burning of God, the consuming fire of love, a terrible doom awaits him and its day will come. He shall be cast into the outer darkness who hates the fire of God. What sick dismay shall then seize upon him? For let a man think and care ever so little about God, he does not therefore exist without God. God is here with him, upholding, warming, delighting, teaching him, making life a good thing to him. God gives him himself, though he knows it not. But when God withdraws from a man, as far as that can be without the man ceasing to be, When the man feels himself abandoned, and this to me is kind of the meaning crisis right here in in a nutshell, Mm. hanging in a ceaseless vertigo of existence upon upon the verge of the gulf of his being without support, without refuge, without aim, without end, for the soul has no weapons with which to destroy herself with no in-breathing of joy, with nothing to make life good, then will he listen in agony for the faintest sound of life from the closed door. Then, if the moan of suffering humanity ever reaches the ear of the outcast of darkness, he will be ready to rush into the very heart of the consuming fire, to know life once more, to change this terror of sick negation, of unspeakable death, 
for that region of painful hope, imagination cannot mislead us into too much horror about a being without God, the one living death. But with this divine difference that the outer darkness is but the most dreadful form of the consuming fire. So this is interesting. The fire without light, the darkness visible, the black flame. God has withdrawn himself, but not lost his hold. His face is turned away, but his hand is laid upon him still. His heart has ceased to beat into the man's heart, but he keeps him alive by his fire. And that fire will go searching and burning on in him as in the highest saint who is not yet pure as he is pure. Then indeed, wilt thou be all in all, for then our poor brothers and sisters, every one, shall have been burnt clean and brought home. For if their moans, myriads of ages away, would turn heaven for us into hell, shall a man be more merciful than God? I like that. Shall of all his glories, his mercy alone not be infinite? Shall a brother love a brother more than the father loves a son? more than the brother Christ loves his brother? Would he not die yet again to save one brother more? And hell itself will pass away and leave her dolorous mansions to the peering day. So I read that and I was just like, okay, I never thought about this. Well, I never have thought about this. It's very beautifully written. You know, McDonald's a very compelling writer. I, I had a thought, though, have, have either of you read C.S. Lewis's book, The Great Divorce? Yeah, I have, yeah. Half a dozen times, at least. Oh, okay. Sherry, you, you have to read this. So, so that is like the perfect continuation or kind of next stop after what well, you're reading. Your I have read it. I have read The Great Divorce. And I also have a, a book here. Um, it was recommended to me by Jeff, actually, and I got it right away. It's uh, C.S. Lewis on George MacDonald. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And so C.S. Lewis says that he, he actually comes out and says, listen, since nobody's noticed, George MacDonald is my master. Mm -hmm. Right. You know, he's the man that has given me, I, you know, the insight. And, and he's referenced him, he says in here, he says he's referenced George MacDonald in almost everything he's ever written. Yeah. So, well, it, MacDonald shows up as a character in, in The Great Divorce itself. Um, right. Right. Uh, but he's, he's changed his mind uh, on, on whether everyone's going to be saved at the end, though, right? Um, yeah. And it, in fact, Lewis is, I mean, Lewis is tackling that very question that MacDonald's getting at is, I mean, wouldn't it? Wouldn't it make heaven like hell for us if, you know, if we were thinking about the cries or screams of the damned, you know, um, and, and if, if we're, if we feel moved with compassion, then God all so much the more, even more compassion than, than us, right? Um, but so, but there's this one, this one moment in the great divorce where it's a, it's a woman talking to her husband and her husband is like on the edge of disappearing like you know oh, okay yeah um and so the, the woman is is a bright spirit 
she's she's saved and she's trying to plead with her husband who can't let go of his his pride and his foolishness and his bitterness and resentment and all that stuff Peterson talks about and he just keeps shrinking and shrinking getting a little bit smaller until finally she's like on her knees looking down trying to talk to him um, and he finally makes the final decision then it's it's over and so then Lewis and McDonald have a talk about this actually where Lewis is Lewis is saying oh man but I mean how is she ever going to enjoy paradise or heaven um, it's and the answer is well at, at a certain point you can't the, the, the bitterness of the damned cannot be allowed to rob the joy of the saved um, because well it's a, it's like what, what I was thinking about earlier with the the ongoing choices culminating in the in that that final moment where um, it's like that there has to be you know God, God God's not going to to, to, to drag a person in, into heaven who who hates him you know um, and that is that is extraordinarily painful for those of us who have friends and family who seem to be rejecting God right now you know um, and so that that is like one of the most difficult and painful questions that people think about when they have a crisis of faith it's like I just couldn't deal with the idea that my really really good friend or good family member is going to go to hell forever I couldn't deal with that so that's why I got out um, and it's but I think that that I think it's a shallow understanding of human nature you know I've been going on too long Karen maybe you want to jump in or Sherry well I'd love to hear what you think of Karen yeah so um, I was thinking about what you said that I can't Quite remember what it was you were saying but the thought that came into my mind was at a certain point in my life I lost someone who was very very important to me who I had had many discussions with about the gospel and this person had continually rejected been hostile towards God and so forth and then they were killed in a particularly dramatic way mm. and I had no assurance whatsoever that before they died that they had an opportunity to make that final decision yeah and i struggled with that for a long time but the conclusion the only conclusion i could come to and and maybe at the time it was the conclusion i came to because it was the only conclusion that would protect my faith i don't know i'm just being honest here because mm -hmm. it's it's a long time ago now so I don't exactly remember, but I remember that what I, when I came out of that crucible, what I came out with is God is good. And whether this individual is in heaven or not, God is good. Yeah. And whether this individual died still rejecting God or died accepting him, God is good. And ultimately, whether I believe any of this or not, God is good. I mean, God is God is good is the foundation of everything. And it doesn't matter. Amen, what, sister. Preach. Yeah. It doesn't Thanks matter what church, other Karen. people might believe or what 
they say about particles and patterns and, and all of that. <laughs> God is good. Yeah. So, yes. Anything that I'm looking at, I have to go back and I have to say, where is the goodness of God in this? If, if, I, want, if I want to struggle with a difficult problem, I'm just going to go looking for the goodness of God in it. Mm -hmm. And um, some people might call that, I don't know, Pollyanna or... So that was the other thing that came up for me is that there are a lot of people that don't really want to be in heaven because they don't like what heaven is going to be. Let's, I don't know what heaven's going to be, but let's just say heaven is a bunch of people like us sitting around talking about how good God is because I can't imagine anything that would be more fun than to just be with a group of people that we all love the Lord and we also, we all love one another and we get to sit around and talk about it. And, and when the angels sing, holy, 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 every time we hear the word holy, another whole beta compression thing will just open up in our minds about all these other aspects of the goodness of God and the glory of God. Every time the angels sing holy, here opens up another, we get to open up another hyperlink and off we go into wonders, you know, okay? So if that's what heaven is going to be, all these other people who have zero interest in this, yeah. they don't want to be there. Exactly. That's, That's the thing. That's the thing. Yeah, but what, what George McDonald, I mean, what I understand from what I read there is that God is a consuming fire and that fire is love. Okay? It's not, it's not a, a kind of, which is, you know, what kind of works together with the whole idea of burning off the dead wood with Jordan Peterson, right? It's, it's, that, it's that idea. It's like, okay, you've got all this baggage. We like that word. And, and, and you die. And George, the way George MacDonald is seeing it is that God's consuming fire is going to get rid of that baggage. It's going to burn, burn off that dead wood. And it's going to make you want to run back. But do you, but do you want it to? So, well, the, so thing is, the thing is, you don't have it. From what I understand here, you don't have a choice. The only thing that keep you, that's keeping you alive is that God has his hand on you, okay? That's in, McDonald's in, frame, right? That's, I'm just speaking strictly as, you know, George McDonald is saying it, right? Right, right. So he, he's saying that the only thing keeping you alive is God's hand on you. And, and, he, is, and he is, you know, with the black flame, as he describes it, or the, you know, the consuming fire, He's going to burn off that dead wood for however long it takes. Because you have all, you know, obviously ample opportunity to, to not want it to happen. But at, but at some point... There's another way you can look at that, though, Sherry. There's another way you can look at that, and that is our God is a consuming fire, and he is um, it's the fire of his love that burns off all the dead wood. If you're too far away from a fire, the ember dies out. And unless you're no, willing, no, I, I unless, totally, you're, um, unless yeah. you're willing to stay close to the fire, yeah, right, it's not going to burn off. And I know, but you know, I see, the, I see the. Sorry, I, I interrupted. There may very well be people who are not willing to stay in the circle of the fire. 
Right. Well, that's that's why that's what George McDonald's talking about there, though. He talks about them being cast into outer darkness. Mm -hmm. Right. Um, and but but then he adds that while they're in the outer darkness, this con this consuming fire is burning away their dead wood. And then at some point they want they want to come back. They they can't handle being in that meaning crisis because that's in, in a sense that's what hell is it's a meaning crisis i have i'm on the verge of 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 nothingness right nothing is sustaining me i ha i am nothing i have nothing i i want nothing i i i have no one like it, it's just this total it's a void it's a it's a spiritual and emotional void and it's and well, so, you know, the pain of what's happening right now, right? I mean, exactly. Yeah, totally. When I read that, I was like, wow, that's the meaning crisis so in a nutshell. People have come running back to the Lord because they went through that period of nihilism right. and it was like living right. in hell. Right. Like, I'm not, I'm not proposing that George MacDonald is correct. All I'm saying is I read that and I never read that before. Okay. Mm -hmm. I never read that, that perspective. Like I've heard about the, uh, the, you know, the Catholic version of purgatory and I always thought it was a little too convenient. <laughs> you know, <laughs> it's just a really convenient idea, you know. And, and, I, and I try not to make, um, like, it's easy to say, yeah, but, you know, these people don't, you know, you, you can't get, you can't, the, the, the consuming fire can't burn you if you're not standing close enough to it. You know, those are comparisons that only we can understand because we're human, right? But what we're talking about is not human. It's supernatural. Mm -hmm. So I'd, I can't make those comparisons in my mind to, to understand it. Like, mm -hmm. I have to, the only thing I can do, me personally, is say, what is, who is God? Who is he? What is his character like? How is he revealed in the scriptures? Would this fit in with his character? Well, so you know, what, do you do with because, what do you do with the passage where Jesus is telling the parable about um, the beggar that is sitting at the gate and um, Lazarus. Lazarus is in hell and he says, just send that, that guy down with some water just for the tip of my tongue. And, and Jesus said, it, help me out here, guys. It's like the idea is... If, there's, a, there's a gulf fixed beat between us. Right. And, and if you wouldn't believe all the other people that I sent you, why would you believe this one? Why would this be any... Uh, many times I have sent people to tell you the truth and you wouldn't believe any of them. Why would you believe yeah. this one? is the basic idea. Okay, so there's that, there's that. But then there's also the fact that Jesus went down into hell and he preached mm -hmm. and people were converted. You know, so for me, like it always goes back to nothing is as it seems, mm -hmm. right? And I, I try to be as wary as I can about my human understanding. So my human understanding would make these, you know, these physical comparisons to, oh, people wouldn't want to, you know. Who knows what you're going to be thinking when you're spiritual, when you're a, a maybe, soul? Maybe the biggest danger of universalism is that it, if it were widely spread around, that 
people would stop thinking about what does it really mean to to believe and trust you know yeah well you know i think because i've been thinking about, about this statue that's going to be made of you someday what it keeps you <laughs> from living into your you know i see what you did there nice nice bringing full circle here in <laughs> the star trek reference well done because we can't go on forever. We've been on an hour and a half already. Yeah, we should, we should try to land the plane. It's going to cut us off here. But um, let's do this again. And next time, make sure Mary's here. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. We're worried yeah. about her. So this is well, been we guys. Well, we have to choose from. Maybe she got mixed up. Yeah, maybe she thought it was a different week. Yeah. yeah or... Um, so maybe she is not anywhere where she's at a, a computer today. So I'm not sure what happened, but yeah. Hi, Mary. We missed you. Missed you, Mary. Yeah, we missed you. Hope you Mary. enjoyed the conversation <laughs> we had without you. <laughs> and I will send this to you, Esther. And thank you. Uh, and and you're okay if we publish, Sherry? Yep, we can publish. Oh, yeah, that's okay. great. I'll, I'll I think we got to week. some wonderful stuff. This has okay. been awesome. I think fun eh i thought it was fun lots yeah. of fun lots of fun lots okay of fun. very good talk to you soon talk to you all soon. Okay,